Good morning, everybody. That's great to be here. And it's so good to look out on this congregation and to see uh, so many folks that were a part of the early years of Redeemer and, and also to see uh, some new faces and the way the Lord is blessing and growing this church. Uh, it's good to be back. Uh, it has been, uh, for me, uh, eight years, but I promise you that was not your fault. It was mine. I've gotten, I don't know how many invitations to come back and preach at Redeemer, and I'm so thankful for uh, the privilege of being here. Uh, my wife is here, Karen, but she's not in this service. I'm going to go pick her up and bring her over for the second service, and uh, I hope that she can greet some of you as she's coming in and you're going out, uh, but it is, it's good to be here. Uh, it's, uh, it's like going back home in a way um, because the Lord just really um, did something very special in raising this church up, uh, and I'm thankful to have been a part of it. So if you would, uh, why don't we bow our heads together and ask the Lord to be with us as we uh, spend a few moments of time in his word. Father God, we thank you uh, so much for your faithfulness, for your faithfulness to your people. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for all that you have done in making us your own and drawing us to yourself, reconciling us through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, and for making us your people. Uh, we are yours, and you are ours. We thank you that you are God, and you are there. You are real, and you are not silent. You speak to us, Lord. Uh, you speak through your word. And we, uh, Lord, believe that your word is truth, inspired, God-breathed. And therefore, it is essential uh, for our understanding and for our growth and maturity in Christ. And so as we turn the focus of our time in worship today... Uh, to the reading and to the preaching of your word, Lord, uh, we thank you for it. Uh, we thank you that you've given to us this wondrous and beautiful gift. And we thank you, dear Lord, that by your spirit, uh, you enable us to understand and to apply your word to our lives. And so today we pray for your help. We need it. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the illuminating, the, the shining work of the spirit of God upon your people and your word so that we can, uh, Lord, rightfully preach and rightfully hear and receive your word into our lives. And so today I pray that you would bless your servant as I stand in this pulpit. Lord, unworthy, always unworthy uh, to be called to preach your word. Uh, but Lord, thankful that by your grace you have done so. Thankful, uh, Lord, for the privilege of declaring the word of life. Thankful for um, being, being a part of uh, today, this congregation and, and its history and, and uh, all that you have done here, and all that you are doing here, uh, we thank you so much. And we pray that you would bless us today as we spend these few moments in your word. Uh, guide, lead uh, your servant as I preach that, Lord, the things that I say would be honoring and glorifying to you and that we, your people, would be open to hear from you and to receive your word into our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you have your Bibles with you and you'd like to follow along with me in the reading of God's Word, would you please open them to the book of Acts? And so today we're going to be looking at just a, a short passage from God's Word, Acts chapter 13. And uh, I'm going to be reading just the first three verses, Acts chapter 13, uh, verses 1 through 3. And so beginning in verse 1, uh, we read these words. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, 
set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. And this is God's word. May the Lord bless its reading and may he also bless its preaching and may he bless us as we hear and receive his word in our lives today. So those of you who know Steve Lanier, this is his last mission festival. And one of the things that I learned from Steve, and I learned many things from Steve, is that Steve can write really, really long emails, right? And if any of you have ever gotten emails from Steve Lanier, you will know that. He does not miss anything in his, in his emails. Well, last October, he sent out uh, an email to Albert and me. And it was an email about this upcoming mission festival. And this is his last mission festival. And so I think he wanted to just make it clear of all the things that that were a part of and would be a part of this wonderful month. And in that, of course, he gave uh, to us the mission theme for this year. Now, you know me, and so you know that uh, I'm, I'm a pastor, so I'm not an itinerant preacher. I don't go around all over the place preaching. And so, so when I think about mission themes, I, I actually really do consider them. And I, I think about how important they are and the amount of time that uh, the, the mission committee has spent in thinking through and preparing that particular theme for this particular mission conference. And therefore, I want to gear what I say in my sermon to that particular theme. And I, you may not know this, but some preachers don't do that. I mean, the, the mission committee will come up with a theme and a preacher will just say whatever he wants. But, but I want to stay on the theme. And so, so I looked at the theme that, uh, that Steve sent. And here's what it said. And, um, and Steve, I don't even know if you remember this because I got the email in October. But here's what it said. It's close, but it said this. Listen carefully. The church, a community of mission together. Did you notice a community of mission together? And so earlier this week, as I, I started getting ready to, to, to preach this, this sermon, I you know, was trying to figure out what to preach. And, and I looked at that theme and I was like, well, you know, that's a, that's a really good theme, but it doesn't quite sound right. And so I went on your website and you see it in your bulletin today. That the theme, and there's a little slight difference, is this. The church, a community on mission together. What Steve sent me was the church, a community of mission together. Now, why am I telling you that? Well, certainly, Steve, it's not to call you out, right? It's probably the only mistake you've made in your entire life, but not calling you, not calling you out. It's to actually draw attention to something. That both are important and both are right. That the church is a community of mission. Now, what do I mean by that? It is a community resulting from God's mission and therefore placed on God's mission together. That means this, and it's a very, very important thing when it comes to understanding missions, that all of us are called to missions because all of us have been missioned. Do you understand that idea? Whether individually or corporately, we are all a result of God's missional work in the world. And therefore, when I thought about that idea, that theme, whether it's of or on missions, of course, my mind went to the book of Acts, and it went specifically to this church. 
Because when you look at the church in Antioch, and I imagine most of you have read through Acts many times and have heard sermons on this passage before, this church existed because of the missionary advancement of the gospel to the world. That's why it was in place, and it's very clear. In fact, we could just go back a couple of chapters in the book of Acts to Acts chapter 11. And in Acts 11, in verses 19 through 20, 21, this is what it says. It says, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, they, they scattered as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Now stop there for just a second. So what this is describing is, is what happened in the early stages of the book of Acts. And you may remember back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, what did Jesus tell his disciples, that version of the Great Commission, that you will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But you also may remember that what happened is the early church at that stage, they, they sort of clustered there. They remained there. Even though they were called by Jesus to go, they didn't. They didn't really go out. And it was persecution. And what this passage in Acts 11 is describing is how as a result of that persecution, specifically the death, the martyrdom of Stephen, they went out. And they went to Phoenicia and to Cyprus. And then one of the places it mentions is to Antioch. And then the text says, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Now remember, in the early stages of the Christian church, it was a Jewish Christian body. And so this is what everybody was doing. They were speaking to Jewish people about their Messiah, Jesus Christ. But then in verse 20, it says, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now, what you're seeing in that text is something very important to understand, that, that Jesus had given them the commission, you are to be witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, which means that the gospel is called to go where? To the world. And now we see it beginning to happen. Because not only is it leaving Jerusalem and Judea, but it is, it's touching the world. Not only Jews, but also the Hellenists. It's touching the world. Now, what you see, therefore, when you look at the church at Antioch is something incredibly important to understand. This is the church that's, that, that really sort of reflects the reality of what God wants in missions. It is a group of people who have been missioned and out of that placed on mission. Do you understand that? They had been missioned and now they were placed on mission. Therefore, as we look at this passage, I think what we can learn from it is some things that are critically important in terms of who we are called to be. So the theme again is a church, the church, a community of mission together the community on mission together. And so what do we learn from this church that reflects those realities? Well, there are three things that I want you to consider with me today. That come, actually, each of them come from the three verses of this passage. And they are these. If we're going to be that church of and on mission together, then first of all, we have to be a church that reflects God's mission. Secondly, we have to be a church that reflects God's will and thirdly, we have to be a church that reflects God's generosity, okay? So let's think about each of those as we make our way through this text. So the first of them is to be the church that reflects God's mission, God's mission. 
When, uh, when I was in seminary, like 150 years ago, one of my, one of my professors was a, a noted uh, missiologist. His name was J. Nelson Jennings. And he, he wrote a book several years ago that's in, entitled this, and the title's intriguing, but I want to draw it to your attention. God, the, the Real Superpower, Rethinking Our Role in Missions. Now, what, what Jennings is doing in that book is, is basically this. He's, he's drawing our attention to, to really the, the, the power, the, the force, and the initiator, if you will, of missions, and that that is ultimately God himself. And therefore, if God is the, the power and the force and the initiator of missions, if he is the real superpower of missions, then what that means is that we need to think of ourselves or maybe for some of us, rethink of ourselves in light of that truth, right? And so the question that we always have to ask ourselves in the church is what does God want? And what does God expect of his people in missions? And I think as you look at the church in, in Antioch, and specifically as you look at its, its leadership and then by implication what this body would be, I think you begin to see one of the things that God wants of his church in missions. And I think you see that in verse one. So if you look at verse one again, what does it say? It says, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and, and uh, Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and of Saul. Now, one of the things you see there is clearly there are these particular sort of gifts or, or offices that were given to the church. Uh, prophets and teachers, which helps you to understand the way God was working in the church. He was, he was directly leading that church through his prophets. He was instructing that church doctrinally through teachers. Now, we don't know which ones of these were prophets, which ones were teachers. It could very well be that they were all prophets, teachers. It could be that some of them were prophets and some of them were teachers. But that's not the main and most interesting thing that stands out to me in this passage. What stands out to me in this text is their diversity, what stands out to me in this text is what God had done in this church, the first time moving into a sort of Jewish Gentile world. So this church was reflecting that, that we see this diversity of leadership. In fact, when you look at these, these names, we don't know a lot about them, but we do know some things. I mean, two of them were African. Now consider this in light of the fact that the church had primarily been Jewish up to this point. Two of these leaders were African. So you have Simeon, who was called Niger. You have Lucius of Cyrene, right? And so you have probably leaders that were from sub-Saharan and northern Africa. Then you have Barnabas, who was a, a Levite of the, of the Jewish diaspora. You have Saul, who all of us know, Saul Paul, uh, the former uh, Pharisee, uh, the persecutor of the church, Saul of Tarsus. And then you have, actually was the most interesting one of, of all of them in terms of what his background was, I think, and that's Manan who is described here as a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Now guess what Herod this was? This was Herod Antipas. Do you remember what Herod Antipas did? He had John the Baptist's head cut off. This guy actually grew up in the court of that man. Talk about going in different directions. Now, what do you, what do you see here? You see these, these five leaders. Now, back up, back up. The church had been primarily Jewish up to this point. 
And now all of a sudden, you have these leaders in this particular church that are coming from all of these different backgrounds, all of these different experiences, all of these different parts of the world, and they're gathered together in leadership in this church, and I believe most certainly in the leadership of this church because they are reflecting the reality of the church itself. Let me say it another way. This was a diverse church, right? And part of the reason I know that is because of what the city was. Antioch, at the time, was the third largest city in the Greco-Roman world. It had over 500,000 people. It was cosmopolitan, it was commercial, it was pluralistic. It had people in that city who were Greek, who were Roman, who were Syrian, who were Phoenician, who were Jewish, who were Arab, who were from Northern Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, Asian, and all of them populated that city. And the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is what Acts 11 says, The gospel of Jesus Christ, it went to whom? To some of them? No, to all of them. To all of them. And all who believed, embraced, and were enfolded into the church of Antioch. Now, let me say this a little more directly. This was a beautiful multi-ethnic church. Does that sound familiar? It's a beautiful multi-ethnic church. The late expositor John, John Stott, he, um, he put it this way, and, and, and he's right what he says. He says that no more appropriate place could be imagined as the springboard for the worldwide Christian mission than this church. Now, why is he right? because it reflected the mission, right? I mean, what was the mission? Elbert read it earlier. Go and make disciples of all nations, pantatai ethne, of all ethnicity. That's the mission. That's what Jesus said before he ascended into heaven. What is the mission? To go from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What is the mission? The mission is made up of the people of the world. Who are we called to? The people of the world. It doesn't matter what they look like. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter from what part of life they come from. It doesn't matter. We are called to them, right? Now, here's a way of thinking about it. The church that started the global mission of God was a church that looked like the globe, right? It looked like the world, right? Now, why does that matter? I think it matters theologically. I think it matters practically. It matters matters theologically because it is a reflection of the reality of the atoning work of God, right? Of what he does in bringing us together. It's one of the things we have always talked about in this church. I'm certain it's still talked about today because it is truth that what brings the church together, what brings you and me together, it isn't some social engineering. What brings us together is the gospel. What brings us together is the reconciling work of our God in our lives. The gospel goes to all. But here's something else. It's not just a theological reality. It's a practical reality that also is incredibly important in gospel advancement. So we are called to go out into the world. And let's say we go out into the world, and we're talking to anybody and everybody, right? It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter what they look like. We're talking to anybody, And then they come with a perspective on religion, which has been the perspective of religion in the world, and still to this day is, which is this, that religion is ethnically specific. Religion is nationalistically specific. Religion is culturally specific. And then they look at us and they say, 
how do you know this Jesus is for me? All you have to say is look at us. Look at us. Redeemer, missions is in your DNA. I hope you know that. Your church of mission for mission. So that's the first thing that I want you to see. The second thing that I want you to understand is for us to be a church on God's mission, that we have to reflect God's will. God's will. Most of us, if not all of you who are here today, are probably familiar with um, John Piper's famous and way overly used words from his book, uh, Let the Nations Be Glad, where he says, worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man, right? And it, it, it reminds us of something. Barry prayed it in his prayer today. It's one of the things I love about worship. It's the way when, you, when you're on the gospel, you guys know this, when your church is on the gospel and on the word, it just, whether you talk about things ahead of time, it just all sort of fits together. That's the way God works in the church. And Barry, when he, when he prayed, one of the things he prayed is of, of how ultimate this is that you are doing today. Worship, how important this is. And he even said it, and I can actually read my notes, and it says exactly what you said. <laughs> it's really interesting. Uh, that, that worship is what we will do throughout all eternity, right? And on the new heavens and the new earth, missions will be no more, right? But worship will stand. Why? Because we are here to worship and glorify God and enjoy him forever. And I think that's what Piper is getting at there. But as we look at this text, I also want you to notice a, a very important linkage that exists between worship and missions, okay? Now, Piper, those of you who are familiar with that book, you'll know that one of the things Piper says is this. Piper says that, that, um, that, that missions exist where worship doesn't. You, you, are you familiar with that, right? That missions exist where worship doesn't. So it, in other words, what he's getting at is this idea that if you desire the worship of God and the glory of God, and there are places in the world where people are not worshiping God, then you are going to pursue them for the sake of the glory of God. That's what he's getting at, okay? Well, this text actually touches on that a bit, but it puts it in a slightly different way. Because what this text is saying is this. It's saying that because worship exists, missions exist. That's what this text is saying. Because worship exists, missions exist. And so if you notice again in verse 2, what, what does it say? It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now note the way this begins. It begins while they were. Now that they there, most scholars will point this out, it's, it's not just specifically a reference to the five leaders. So that what's being described here isn't these five leaders and they decided to pull aside and, and they would spend some time worshiping the Lord and fasting to determine God's will. That's not what this text is saying. What this text is actually saying is that here are the five leaders of the prophets, teachers of the church, but the they that's reflected here is all of them, all of the people of God in the church in Antioch. They all gathered together to worship God, and it says they worshiped him and they fasted. Now, you know what fasting is. I mean, fasting is to set aside, right? It's to set aside food and drink uh, for, for a time, but it's to set aside for a reason. It's to set aside food and drink for the purpose of focusing all of yourself on the Lord. 
And so what this text is communicating here is an urgency. This is what you have to see, an urgency on the part of God's people, a longing on the part of God's people, which all of us need to have to do what? To know God's will, to know what God desires, to know what God would want of his people. And so here's a church that in the gathered worship, they are longing to know the mind of their Savior. They're longing to know what he wants for them, okay? And what happens God makes himself known, doesn't he? He makes himself known. Through, through probably one of these prophets here, he makes it clear, the Holy Spirit makes it clear that Barnabas and Saul are to be set apart for the purpose in which God calls them. Now, it doesn't give clear indication as to what that purpose is. Not here. We know what it is. If you read the book of the rest of the book of Acts, you know what it is. It's the three missionary journeys. It's the gospel going to the furthest reaches of the world. That's what he's calling them to, right? So he makes it known that Barnabas and Saul are to be set apart. Now reflect on this for just a second. What's being said here? God's people long to know God better. That's what this is. They want to know him. And so they come together, which is appropriate, right, in worship, longing to know him, to praise him, to worship him, to hear him speak to them, to hear him guide them, to hear him lead them, right? And he does. He meets them in this place of worship. Now, one of the things this reflects or helps us to understand is the importance of something that I think we are losing today. And you know what that is? Corporate, gathered, public worship. And the significance of God meeting us here, in this place, under his word, coming to his sacrament. Okay? Think about the evil one and his intentions towards God and the church, right? What the evil one would want is to stymie, right? God's purposes in your life and in the world to stymie the advancement of the gospel to the furthest reaches of the world. And when we think about what the evil one would do to try to accomplish that goal, uh, there are several things you can consider. Uh, There are a lot of things that probably come to your mind right now, like persecution, conformity to this world system, which I think is a problem the church is dealing with a lot right now, right? False teaching heresy. Those are all ways that could stymie the advancement of, of the kingdom in the world. But here's a way that I do not know if we spend enough time thinking about, but I think it is central to missions. And that is this. If the evil one wants to slow down God's church, then make God's people indifferent to corporate worship. Make them so they don't care, that it really doesn't matter. And my brothers and sisters in Christ, that is exactly what's happening in the American church today, right? It is. And it's not just a COVID reality. I I imagine that you have, I know we have in in Miami, uh, we have been dealing with all that happened because of COVID and all that happened because we had to go live stream and there are blessings that have come out of that. But then as we move past COVID, trying to bring people back, but here's what I want you to understand. COVID was just fuel to this fire. This was happening before, right? It was happening before COVID. People were already becoming indifferent, right? But here's the thing you need to understand. 
if you are going to do and be God's people on mission, you have to be formed for that. And where are you formed for that? Right here. Right here. Notice the thing. A church on mission together. How are you going to do that together if you are not together? Right? If you're not together. Paul, and you know this, this sort of order of things in Paul's writing. Paul is always concerned in his writings about who we are before he gets to what we do, right? It's the way he moves from theology to ethics, right? You see that in his letters all the time. It's this notion of being before doing, right? This is, this is what it's about. It's, it's who we are. Now, here's the point that Piper is making. Who are you? Who are you eternally? You are a worshiper, a worshiper of God. And unless we come back to that, all the rest of it, it's just, it just becomes busy work because we've not been forced in the word, okay? So God-centered, Christ-exalting worship. So that's the second thing. The third thing, the final thing that we see here is that the church must reflect God's generosity. And, and you know, God is, is extravagantly generous. I mean, we know that. He is a giver in every possible way. He is wondrous in, in being sacrificial in his love towards us. That's what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. And this, this generosity of our God in, in coming to us and providing for us and making his only begotten son uh, uh, here to sacrifice himself for us, uh, all of that is what reconciles us ultimately to God, right? But it also does more than that. It, it creates a, a, a paradigm shift in, in God's people. So you remember Augustine, he makes this statement of what sin is. And, and there are all kinds of different ways you can think about what sin is, missing the mark and all those kind of things. But Augustine talks about sin and its core. And what sin is, is man turned in on himself. That's what Augustine says. So man turned in on himself is this, this notion that what sin does is it turns us away from God. It turns us away from others. In fact, it even turns us rightly away from ourselves and it turns us inwardly in selfishness, right? That's sin. And so sin cuts us off. It makes us something else so that we're not able to give of ourselves. We're not able to serve. We're not able to move out sacrificially into the world that God has given to us. We're not able to be a people on mission. But the gospel reorients. The gospel paradigm shifts. It not only redeems us and saves us and reconciles us to the one true living God, it reorients our hearts so that we now can move upward and outward and rightly towards ourselves, okay? That's the gospel, and it's a wonderful thing, and it shapes everything. In fact, when you think about Paul's, and I'm going to take you to a text real quickly. When Paul encourages the Corinthians to give do you remember what he does? He gives, this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He gives the example of the Macedonian churches, and he talks about how the Macedonian churches, out of their poverty, have overflowed in the wealth of generosity. You remember that? This is how they gave. But where did they get it from? How did that get in them? Because Paul there is not just simply saying, be like the Macedonians. What he's saying is, look at the Macedonians, because the Macedonians... Their lens, they view everything, everything 
through Jesus. And that's why he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. What is he saying? Give according to the generosity of God and his son, Jesus Christ. Is that not what he's saying? Now, if you go back to Acts 13, here's the Holy Spirit now revealing God's will for them. And it's interesting what the Holy Spirit doesn't do. The Holy Spirit doesn't come to the church in Antioch and say, hey, listen, guys, I got a mission for you. I want you to go to the world. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to choose a few volunteers, right? Or here's another way you can put it. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to look around, and I want you to see some folks who are basically aren't really doing anything, right? They're not really that needed. And why don't you send those folks out? Because they're really, you know, they're not that important to you. So they, maybe they can find something to do somewhere else, right? Is that what he does? Now, we don't know a lot. I said this at the beginning. We don't know a lot about these five people, but we know a lot about these two dudes that were sent out. We know a lot about Barnabas. We know a lot about Paul. And what we know about them is that these two men were two of the most important people in all of Christian history. Not just the first century, all of Christian history. And God has the nerve to come to them and say, send them out. You see this radical generosity thing? Right? Now, how do they respond? Well, that's verse three. Then after fasting and praying, no, no reluctance, no hesitancy. They laid hands on them, which here isn't, it's not ordination. It's not what this is, because Paul and, and Barnabas were both already set apart, ordained in ministry before this. It's a commissioning. It's a, it's a, what this is, is a, it's a way of identifying with. And, and, and what it is, is saying this, because the text ends by saying, and they sent them off. It's, it's, like, it's like we're laying our hands on you, and here's what we're doing. We're identifying with you. We're identifying with him. We're identifying with the gospel. And here's what we're doing. We're letting you go. We're releasing you for the purpose of God in the world. Now, one of the things that Redeemer does, and I'm going to wrap up with this. I, dude, I don't know how long you preach. Okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> long. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I promise I won't be much longer because I want to beat Elbert getting out of here. Right? <laughs> One of the things that Redeemer has done from its inception, and this is, this is Steve Lanier, and I, I love this about him, and he taught me this. Um, well, I'll say this because this is, you know, Steve retired, so this is his last mission festival. I cannot tell you how many things I've learned about pastoring from that brother. I, I would not know how to do it if I didn't know him, so... Thank you, Steve. Anyway, yeah, give him a hand. From the very beginning, Steve has put into missions, and it's here today, it's in your, your faith promise card, this idea of your response to it. It is to pray and to give and to go, right? Now, all three of those require generosity. All three of those require you getting the gospel. To pray 
requires you taking the time and focusing on the missionaries you support and what God is doing through this church to the world, that you would spend time praying for. To give means that you are sacrificially going beyond what you normally give to this church for the sake of the advancement of the gospel. And to go, to go. My brothers and sisters in Christ, this has been a prayer. Every mission festival, when I get back to Miami, we're doing our mission festival. Every single mission festival, from the time I pastored here, the church I pastored before that, the church I pastor now, every one of them, here's what I have prayed, that the Lord would call out of the church, out of the church, it doesn't matter who you are, out of this church, it doesn't matter how central you are, how important you are, what matters is God's call to missions in his world. And the only way you will be able to respond to that and you will be able to release the person is by knowing that it is about something bigger than you. It's about what God Almighty is doing through you to his world because you are a community of and on mission together. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word, for your faithfulness, for your love. Thank you for Jesus. Help us to be, Lord, always faithful to you as we seek to serve and honor you. In Christ's name, amen.